Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. I was telling Pat when I got off the plane that, um, you know, I've um, spoken at many places at Harvard and Princeton and all, and there's, for some reason, there was this excitement about coming here. And I'm not really sure why, other than that you're just sort of legendary in the Catholic world. So it's good to be with all of you. Um, I am used to speaking at law schools and um, colleges. Um, I admire um, nurses tremendously, far more than doctors. Having had six children, I know who is really the boss. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's great to be with all of you, um, and uh, I, I don't think I have a lot of legalese in my talk, so don't be too worried it's not a talk uh, for lawyers, uh, but just know that that's where kind of my reasoning uh, comes from. So a few days after um, I published an op-ed on abortion on a prominent news website, it was actually on CNN.com, which doesn't generally publish pro-life articles, um, my husband received an email from a dear friend which read, well, I'm glad someone is still talking about abortion. I suppose that in light of the constant stream of news about the inevitability of gay marriage and now the specter of transgenderism, my husband's friends seem relieved to get back to the Catholic's comfort zone. We Catholics know how to talk about abortion, about how to value both mother and child, and I think by and large, we're winning. But here's the thing, from my perspective as one who has uh, been thinking for some time about how to best respond to uh, feminist equality arguments for abortion rights for some time now, as Pat laid out some of my um, articles, these newer arguments that are all the rage about uh, marriage equality and gender fluidity, these all kind of falter due to the very same philosophical misunderstandings as those underlying most pro-abortion um, equality arguments. So at the very heart of all these issues, I think, uh, at the heart of all the issues that have arisen for the past 50 years from out of the sexual revolution, is how we understand or really how we misunderstand the body, human embodiedness. We live in a post-Cartesian, so post-Descartes, Gnostic age. Gnosticism was an ancient heresy that sort of thought of matter as evil, and we were all sort of trying to get out of it. An ancient Christian heresy, we we're all trying to get out of, uh, escape the body in order to return to the spirit. So we live in this post-Cartesian, this very Gnostic age, where in one's identity, uh, is defined by one's mind alone, one's ideas, feelings, uh, one's consciousness. The body is, for some, kind of a mere appendage. And for others, like scientific materialists, both body and soul are uh, sort of you know, chemical releases, um, reactions, kind of an amalgamation of these. Though requiring organic food and uh, trendy clothing and lots and lots of exercise, somehow um, what the subject, the I, does with his or her body, especially sexually, does not have any real impact upon the subject's identity. Matter doesn't matter. The body is a mere fixture or tool to be exploited or manipulated or trimmed and toned as the eye sees fit. I can use my body for sexual pleasure or release without this act really affecting the real me. I can abort a pregnancy, a human body that's inside my body with no moral qualms. After all, that nascent human body has not obtained to the requisite uh, consciousness to be considered another I, a subject or person with rights. Moreover, abortion as an act I do to my body and to that little unborn body has no impact upon the real me. 
And now I can even change the sexual organs of my body to make them line up with the real me, the subject who determines who I really am. This modern view that is kind of in the drinking water um, is that the autonomous, unencumbered I is really the subject of human dignity. Okay, it's not the body and soul together, but really this, this, this subject, this, this, the consciousness is the one who's subject of human dignity, of meaning and identity, of personal and political rights. The body's just a shell to be used, manipulated, transformed, or even discarded in the case of, um, of assist, a doctor-assisted suicide at will. So the main task of John Paul II's Theology of the Body, can I have a sh raise of hands? Does everybody at Steubenville know Theology of the Body? Not really, yes, most people do, okay. Um, was to defend uh, you know, the body basically from the, the attacks of um, and the errors of scientific rationalism, of Cartesian dualism. And John Paul II's account and affirmation of the body is truly remarkable. Theology of the body is a deeply scriptural account of the wondrous way God designed us as embodied to speak of our relationality with one another and with God. If you haven't read it, it's hard, um, but there are um, you know, sort of helpful aids, some of which have been written, I think, by Steubenville grads. Uh, and there's sort of a whole cottage industry um, around trying to get theology of the body out to um, as many people as possible as, as the catechetical tool that, the, that John Paul II intended it to be. So John Paul II Catholics, I would consider myself a JP2 Catholic, someone came back to the church kind of in the wave of John Paul II. We've been well formed to resist this current Gnosticism, you know, thinking of um, the body as, as less than. Still, theology of the body is theology. And so while John Paul II beautifully explored how the body ultimately reveals God's purpose in creating us male and female, theology of the body on its own is not a currency in which we can trade, right, when we speak to the culture at large. It's in, a need, of, it's in need of a bit of translation. I sometimes think that that's sort of my main work, even though my work is more academic and scholarly. It's still sort of um, jumping off from, from a lot of the insights that John Paul II had. So while writing, um, John, when he, when he was writing his defense of the body, his exposition of the complementarity of men and women, of the meaning of masculinity and femininity, others were pushing quite far on the other end, arguing, for instance, that not only is gender a social construct, I'm sure some of you have heard about this, a social identity we create out of, create out of whole cloth, but sex is somehow a social construct too. That is, for many cultural elites and opinion makers right now, not only are masculinity and femininity bygone concepts, but male and female are on their way out too. Gender fluidity, the idea that, that one does not receive but actually creates one's gender identity seems of late to have won the day. And I don't think that theology of the body on its own is gonna do much to help those who are far outside the church. Yet John Paul II's insights about the body, about the need to attend to the body, to give a defense of the body, to affirm the body, is I think even more profound today. The body, human embodiedness, tells us much, much that I think can be understood by today's religious skeptics and feminists, so long as they have not discarded reason along the way. So what I want to do this afternoon is talk about what I think, uh, some of what I think the body tells us, and what that means for women, for children, and for men too. I want to talk about the asymmetries, okay, present um, in our gendered bodies, whether we acknowledge them or not, and the vulnerabilities they present, especially for women. And I want to talk about our current response to sexual asymmetry. 
um, and how this has impacted women in particular. And then I want to turn and talk a bit more specifically about what the body teaches us about vulnerability and dependency with a focus on the mother-child relationship, which is, of course, the subject of this conference. And finally, I'm going to talk at some length about what it, this all means for men, the essential if forgotten role of the father. And I want to do this by teasing out some important insights by a group of feminists whose thinkings on some key matters aligns rather nicely with that of Catholics. These care feminists, they call themselves, they call themselves other names too, relational feminists, dependency feminists, will be especially important in the second part of my talk. They're sort of my chief interlocutors. As anyone who has known my work, uh, as anyone who's read my work knows, I don't know if there's many of you in here, but I'm very keen on engagement with feminist thinking knowing how these arguments have powerfully swayed so many in our culture and carefully and prayerfully separating the wheat from the chaff. And um, my background, usually, oftentimes when I come to speak, I try to weave uh, um, my story, my conversion story, into my talks. And perhaps I should have done that for you, but I'm not. So I'm going to give you a quick, um, a very you know, two-sentence um, summary, which is that I grew up in a very broken home. My mom was married and divorced three times. And I turned first toward alcohol and drugs. And then when I came out of that, once I got to college, I ran sort of out of fear of men and, and all of this um, into the Women's Center on campus, um, where I went to a very sort of elite private school in New England uh, um, college, definitely not Catholic. And, um, and so I spent a lot of time in the Women's Center, in the Feminist Center, and considered myself a socialist feminist, pretty radical feminist. And the way out of that is a big, long story, which we don't have time for. Um, but I came to discover, um, much through my own suffering, but also through lots of reading, friends, and then, it, as it turns out, lots of prayer, that the Catholic understanding of, of women and also of suffering and everything I'd gone through made a lot more sense to me than, than the feminist narrative that I had learned. So my background, I have a lot of sort of um, feminist thinking in my uh, background, which um, helps me to be in conversation with a lot of what, what is going on in the culture. Um, a lot easier, I think, than some who have been sort of raised Catholic from, from the get-go. So I want to um, make two points about, important points, I think, about starting in with the body, sort of making um, uh, arguments starting with the body. The first is this fear of biological determinism. And I don't know, it's sort of, uh, you know, those who have studied philosophy may have heard of this. Um, it's not something we just talk about generally, fear of biological determinism. But basically, it's this idea that, um, you know, this mistaken view that biology ultimately determines who we must be, or that biology somehow determines ethics. And when everyone's going to start talking about the body, you're going to have people who are going to start saying that you're a determinist, and you think that just anything that is natural or anything that has to do with sort of what the body would do determines how we must live. Therefore, women should be pregnant and in the kitchen all the time or something. Maybe not the kitchen, but should be pregnant all the time because it's a natural course of events that women can get pregnant. But biological determinism errs the way any kind of determinism errs. And it, it basically disregards the essential and especially human characteristic of freedom. The human person is an embodied soul or an ensouled body, uh, a rational animal, according to Aristotle. And as such, the human person is free. So human freedom allows persons to choose, right, in accord with the intellect's highest perceived goods or still lower goods, in accord with religious ideals or mere animalistic desires, in, a, in accord with God's will or more base um, passions, or uh, obviously a confluence of all, of all of these at different times, even one day. <laughs> human persons are endowed with free will. But human freedom, like our abil ability to reason, is both enabled and constrained 
by the human body. This is how we, the intellect works is through obviously sense perceptions, right? We don't just sort of have a flying intellect that, that knows things. We always use our eyes, our ears, all of our senses to perceive and then, and then make, you know, know things and make judgments about things. So that's how it works, right? But we're also constrained by our, by our body. So even though the, person, the human person is a free, rational being, we still may, we still must inquire about what it means for the human person to be a bodily being, an integrated composite of body and soul. And Patley has actually done great scholarly work in this area in philosophy. Father Barron, anybody know Father Barron? One of my big heroes, spiritual heroes. If you don't know him and you want some good spiritual um, stuff for your soul, go find his podcast. But he actually just today was talking about how we're sort of, humans are this, um, we're ha he called us half-breeds, that we're uh, this um, metaphysical uh, mongrel because we are part angel and, and part animal um, in some sense, uh, that we can aspire like the angels do in, in, in con contemplative prayer like the angels do, but we are very much constrained by things like needing food and water like the animals, or food and shelter, etc. Okay, so a second note is the terms femininity and masculinity. They're um, loaded concepts, right? Especially these days when, we, when people want to discuss things like gender. And so these are, you know, the social norms or traits that have been traditionally associated with the female or male sex. So one of the main reasons, I think, that many over the last half century have sought to dispense with sexual difference, right? A sense of sort of a strong difference about the difference between men and women in favor of more androgynous society. Like, there are no differences. We're all the same, men and women. Go have boys and girls, by the way, as children, and uh, that will quickly be, you'll quickly be disabused of that. Um, but because, you know, I think some have tried, to, have tried to move away from this, especially feminists, because the characteristics associated with being a woman traditionally, right? Nurture, caretaking, selflessness, have consistently, you know, throughout history really, been undervalued as compared with traditionally masculine values of competitiveness, assertiveness, and autonomy. Masculine values have more cultural power. No doubt, they always have. So in the feminist quest for equality, feminine values that one hastens to notice are also Christian values, not that some masculine val values traditionally aren't, um, like justice and things like that, but these have been traded in for those values more associated traditionally with men, individual autonomy being foremost among them. I think this is interesting to note in that it gives, I think, a real sense of the misogyny, sort of the hatred of women that underlies this current push toward androgyny, toward you know, a sexless kind of society. But I'm actually not going to talk much about femininity and masculinity. I'm not going to start there and sort of assert for you today that women are nurturing. Um, what I want to do is start with embodiedness, what the body, what being a man and a woman uh, tells us. So I want to focus on, if you want, well, sex and not gender. Um, so let's start with the basic fact of life that is increasingly scrutinized and seems almost despised sometimes in some circles, especially in the Northeast where I'm from, I think. <laughs> Um, women and men are biologically and reproductively dissimilar, right? Our bodies share many common attributes as the given bodies of homo sapiens, but how we engage in sex and take part in reproduction is not one of them. You nursing students, I think probably know this best out of any of us, right? Um, the dissimilarity of our bodies gives rise, and this is the key here to this first part of the talk. Dissimilarity gives rise to sexual asymmetry. It's not just difference, there's an asymmetry, okay? The, the, this is the phrase evolutionary psychologists and biologists use to describe um, the fundamental reality that the potential consequences of sex are far more imme immediate and serious for women than men, right? We have this big term um, that is just an obvious, simple reality that women get pregnant and men don't. 
Uh, this sexual asymmetry underlies the natural vulnerability that women and children experience, a vulnerability that, has, that callous men have exploited throughout human history. So I'm going to spend a great deal of time talking about vulnerability in and of itself in a bit. But first, I want to look more closely at the gendered reality the body presents, the reality not only, again, of sexual difference, but really of sexual asymmetry. And I want to be really clear about it. The ba this basic fact of life that women get pregnant and men don't, this is what underlies all strains of feminism. It's really feminism's raison d'etre, right? It's, it's reason for being, um, even though that's, I think, been pretty much overlooked these days. Um, it's, it's certainly why I'm interested in feminist theory, um, even as much as I can disagree with it sometime. So it's my favorite hard left, um, very um, progressive, liberal, whatever you want to call her, um, radical really, feminist, Camille Paglia has put it. She says, it's not male society, but mother nature who lays the heaviest burden on women. So the question then becomes, I mean, if this is just reality, right? This is just a simple, women get pregnant, men don't. So what do we do about that? What do we do about that if we're seeking to live in an egalitarian um, a society that, that is striving for equality, um, like, like our American society? So the question you know, is, how do we respond personally and culturally to the reality of, of sexual asymmetry? So the feminist response in the 1960s and 70s was to advocate for the widespread use of contraception and abortion. Through contraception and abortion, these feminists sought to change this asymmetrical equation, right? And I don't want to say like women down here, men up there. That's not how I regard it with women getting to have babies and men not, frankly. But we'll just say when I'm trying to give you asymmetries like this, right? They want to change it so there was some, there was a sameness, right? So they thought that they could equalize the sexual experiences of men and women such that women could enjoy sex without necessarily having to succumb to its reproductive consequences. Men's bodies, after all, do not carry the consequences of their fertility within them. Contraception and abortion afforded women a means to imitate this masculine detachment from child, childbearing. So sexual asymmetry and the vulnerability, the feminine vulnerability that accompanies it, would be cured, it was thought, by decoupling sex from procreation, right? Men get to have sex and walk away. Women have sex, and if she should get pregnant, she's got a child with her, right? She has reproductive consequence. Um, so they thought if we just decouple sex, right, separate sex and procreation, we relieve women from the consequences of sex, and thus we equalize the sexual experiences of men and women. Okay, so this is sort of the vision of why we had the sexual revolution, contraception. I mean, to some extent, that's an aspect of it. But here's the problem. Whereas men are reproductively autonomous or detached by nature, women must act affirmatively and destructively in the case of abortion if they are to imitate male reproductive autonomy. Now, by advocating contraception and abortion as the cure, secular feminists put the onus on who? On women and women's bodies. When authentic, what I would call authentic reproductive justice, this is a term that a lot of feminists, especially um, out there, are using now. Um, you'll hear it even in, in sort of mainstream um, political conversations, right? I think that authentic reproductive justice and sexual equality would require, and more about this in a minute, that men and society at large respect, protect, and support women's unique childbearing capacity. This is, of course, why the 19th century suffragists, those fighting for the right to vote, uh, American feminists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, were they viewed uh, abortion as an attack on women as women. You know, these were our first 
feminists um, in this country. They viewed abortion uh, as an attack on women as women. We're very pro-life. And many of the same, which fewer people know, also remain skeptical of these newly minted contraceptive methods. They, you know, imitating male reproductive autonomy did not seem particularly pro-woman to these original feminists. But this is not all. Second wave feminist advocates of contraception abortion not only sought the cure in women's bodies rather than in men's character and society's benevolence in attempting to decouple sex from procreation as a means to equalize women's sexual experiences to those of men. It looks as though, as though feminist advocates may have ended up exacerbating, right? Making worse the sexual asymmetry they hope to relieve and also the vulnerability they hope to relieve. So more than 50 years after the pill was introduced in 1960, more than 40 years after Roe versus Wade, nearly half of all pregnancies each year are still unintended. There are more than a million abortions a year, half of which the Gottmacher Institute tells us are due to failed or misused contraception. Thus, even after all this time, even after all these attempts to ignore or reject these bodily realities, they persist. Sex still makes babies and women are still the ones whose bodies are bearing them. So contraception and abortion haven't equalized the sexual experiences of those of men and women. They haven't relieved women of the consequences of sex or the vulnerabilities of pregnancy. What they have done is detach men even further from this procreative potential of sexual intercourse, offering men the illusion that sex can finally be completely consequence-free. So what has reproductive freedom really meant then? Well, women continue to negotiate all that comes with reproduction, and men enjoy the freedom of sex without consequences, the freedom to have sex and walk away. So as a number of economists, sorry, I, you probably don't want to hear what economists think, but I'm going to tell you anyway. <laughs> uh, a number of economists over the last two decades have actually spent some time thinking about what happened with the sexual revolution, because this is a kind of a big deal, major family breakdown. Um, what they saw was, um, you know, out of wedlock, you have 1960s and 1970s, uh, out of wedlock births, non-marital births are at about 5%. Suddenly there's just a major increase, okay? I mean, you ha up to 40% and 70% now among African Americans. So, um, you know, economists want to look at this. Why? Because they generate models to look at sort of how individual choices affect other individual choices, how they work together. And so they have sort of a rational basis to understand how human relationships work. Um, and we probably don't want to think about relationships in economic terms, but it's really helpful for a couple moments to do so. And I actually usually spend like 20 minutes on this, but I'm going to try to whittle it down to about five. So try to, you know, I think the arguments are very persuasive and interesting. Um, if you're really interested in this, you can read some more of my stuff or you can go on. I will put, um, there's a great video. It's a seven minute video that basically does what I'm going to do here. Um, and it's far more interesting because it's a video. It's really cool. Um, <laughs> It is really cool, actually. You all have to see it, and I wish I could just show it for, to you now. Maybe we can after. Anyway, okay, so um, where am I? Um, okay, so as a number of economists um, over the last two decades have demonstrated, abortion and contracep contraception, some of them just looked at abortion, some of them just looked at contraception, especially, I think, when working together, have actually weakened women's ability to find men willing to commit to more than limited sexual encounters. How do they explain how this happened? Well, according to Nobel Prize winning economists, I mean, this is not like a little economist working in some podunk, you know, college. Nothing against podunk colleges. Um, not that this is a podunk college. Um, but, but this is a Nobel Prize winning Berkeley economist. Um, so he and his colleagues said that prior to the availability of the pill and abortion, 
Women could demand what he says a high price for sex, right? They could condition sex upon marriage or the promise of marriage should uh, pregnancy come um, unintentionally, um, unexpectedly. But the pill and abortion empowered men basically to begin to initiate sex with women without having to make such promises. The pill, after all, had drastically decreased the risk of pregnancy to women. And abortion was available in case pregnancy did occur, right? So economists refer to this as the moral hazard effect. That, that is, the pill and abortion give sexual pa partners the confidence that they are fully protected against the ri risk of pregnancy, right? We've got the pill, which works really, really well, and we've got abortion. So we're fully protected against the risk of pregnancy. But complete protection against risk, is this is just a general economic rule. If you, I don't think there's any economic majors out there, but complete protection against risk leads people to engage in riskier behavior, right? So here are some common you know, uh, life examples. When there's no deductible in car insurance, we see more accidents, economists tell us. When there's no copay in medical insurance, we see more people going to the doctor for you know, nosebleeds or whatever. Okay, this is why we have deductibles and copays because the uh, economists have looked at the models and seen that they're better for, um, that, that makes more sense to have people take some responsibility. So similarly, when the cost of pregnancy is low, right? When, 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 when there's just this sense that we're not gonna get pregnant, so the cost of pregnancy is low, sexual partners take more risks and we see more pregnancy overall. So how does that work? Well, they take risks like, oh, you know, we start, something called habit persistence. So teens, you'll see, um, will just start having, they'll, they'll be introduced to the condom in their sex ed classes. They'll start using it and say, great, well now they're, they have a habit of having sex with their boyfriend or girlfriend, and so they'll just keep having, oh, forget the condom one time, okay? Or they'll start realizing that in sexual relationships, I just, this is what I do, I engage in sex, right? So they weren't gonna do that before if sort of abstinence was the way to go, but they just start engaging in sex, and that's a habit that they then engage in more sex, and there's a lot of failure with regard to contraception. Well, first of all, there's just non-use because, but then there's a lot of um, uh, you know, misuse, basically due to method failure, methods fail, and there's user failure, really high rates of user failure in all methods, except for these long acting ones, which we can talk about. Um, so basically, readily available contraception abortion, it basically induced a change in behavior in favor of greater sexual risk taking. So it's not as though you just put contraception abortion in the market and everybody acted the same as they did before. No, 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 no. Change in behavior, way more sexual activity happening. So as, as people perceive sex to be safer, they pursue more of it in riskier circumstances. So this shift radically transformed what economists call the mating market in favor of what? Low cost sex. And whose preference is this? Generally males, okay? In the literature, what you see is that men prefer sex with, you know, outside of relationship. Women want a relationship. Now this is not the men in this room who are very noble and good, <laughs> but in general, this is what you see in the literature. Um, so, uh, so if, if the risk of pregnancy was reduced, sex need not be confined to marriage, which common sense then held was the proper place for raising children. Indeed, with the decreased risk of pregnancy, sexual activity need not be confined to committed relationships at all, right? I mean, this could be a recreational sport now because there's no pregnancy. Nothing happens when you have sex, right? Since men could find women willing to engage in low commitment sex, men were less likely to what? Commit to marriage before sex, obviously, which you never see anymore. I mean, you do here at Steubenville, but you know, they were also more likely to shirk parental and marital responsibilities should contraception fail, as it often does, and pregnancy unexpectedly occur. With contraception and abortion available, children were not part of the bargain, right? Children were not what the men had bargained for. So since the release of the pill and legalization of abortion, we've, we've seen this dramatic increase, right, in non-marital childbearing, especially among 
the poor. This is counterintuitive, totally counterintuitive, to those who think widespread contraception, illegal abortion, should have decreased single motherhood. I mean, this was the push back then. It's still the push. If you listen to Nancy Pelosi or anyone, they say, well, how could you think that, of course, we need to dump more contraception into poor neighborhoods or more contraception? Because, of course, it's going to reduce single motherhood. This is the argument you always hear, but now we've seen laid out why that doesn't work. Okay, you've probably had a sense of that, but now we see change in behavior, right? So as Akerlof showed, um, some women, and this, is, this gets to, to, the, to the single motherhood point especially, some women, especially among the disadvantaged, are simply not willing to abort their children when they become pregnant due to non-use, misuse, or failed contraception. There's a great book called Promises I Can Keep, really, really good book about why women in um, disadvantaged um, situations have, have opt to get pregnant, basically, when they're not married. Really great book. Um, and then there's just a study recently that showed, um, I didn't get to read the whole thing, but basically showed how in poor, poor neighborhoods, poor women tend to not go for abortion in nearly the rates that, that wealthier, more educated women do. So as sex outside of marriage increased, so did single motherhood. And the availability of contraception has, in this culture-wide shift, so decoupled sex from procreation and procreation from marriage that these poor women often have to go it alone without a father there to support them. And the results are bitter for single moms. Um, it is the leading indicator of poverty, and there's a lot more ills that go with it, which we will talk about later in the, in the fatherhood section of my talk. Um, and so, you know, for Akerlof, the pill, that little pill, had a lot to do with the crises we see today. Um, so abortion, of course, provides no free and easy alternative uh, for women with scores of study indicating an increased risk of placenta previa and preterm birth and later pregnancies. And though more, far more controversial, which Priscilla Coleman, I think, is talking about tonight, is the, is the increase in, in uh, psychological um, issues as well. So finally, casual sex is not itself is disproportionately has a sorry casual sex itself has a disproportionately negative effect on women, um, and sex difference in our bodies plays a large role. So oxytocin has anybody studied about oxytocin yet? So oxytocin um, is released in a in a woman's body during pregnancy and breastfeeding. They call it shoot what's the they call it the the cuddle hormone I think some the bonding hormone. Wait, it's a bonding hormone, right? It's released during um, pregnancy and breastfeeding. It's also released. Now, I've just learned, I thought it was just released with women and sex. That's not true. It's released in both. But because of um, female hormones enable oxytocin to sort of work much more, whereas testosterone male hormones tend to suppress the effects of the bonding hormone. Um, so anyway, that's a whole nother talk that one of you will some, someday give a lot more. But basically, there's this bonding that happens with a woman when she has sex, right, that is far more um, than than with a man. So no fault of her own and regardless of her intentions or desires to remain emotionally detached, like in this whole hookup culture, they want to remain emotionally detached. Women remain far more connected after men do um, than men do after sex. And furthermore, due to women's distinctive anatomical structure, women are a far greater risk of contracting STDs, which also affect women par far more profoundly, including an increased risk to women's future fertility. Okay. So hopefully I persuaded you with um, a lot more words than I was intending to, so I have a lot more of this talk to go, and hopefully you're enjoying it because <laughs> there's a lot more. Um, but anyway, I hope I persuaded you, um, if you were in need of any persuading, that there's plenty of evidence that our uh, culture's current response to sexual asymmetry has not benefited women, much to the contrary.
For women who hope to have and raise a family, which is really the great majority of women, whether they be privileged and educated or poor with less education, traditional or more progressive, homemakers or more professionally inclined, this feminist quest to imitate masculine reproductive detachment from childbearing works very much to women's disadvantage. Yet this is the going thing. This is what our, how our law works right now. This is culturally speaking how it works, is to imitate sort of the male model. And it's the not good male model. You know, it's this detachment from childbearing. From childbearing. So what's the better response? So that's the second half um, of, of my talk. So in short, it seems um, that our culture must acknowledge sexual difference and more importantly, sexual asymmetry and the vulnerability inherent in childbearing and in caregiving. So let me now turn to the subject of vulnerability. I wanna map out what I think our embodiedness teaches us about vulnerability and dependency and what I think that means for the vocations of motherhood and fatherhood. Now, for most feminists, who again, I like to have as my uh, respondents here, especially the most vocal, acknowledging women's vulnerabilities playing right into the hands of who? The patriarchy, right? <laughs> do, do you guys even use that term around here? A lot of people do. So it's like suggesting that women ought to remain barefoot and pregnant or relegated to the kitchen. But there's a strain of feminists, as I mentioned, called care feminists, relational feminists, dependency feminists, for whom Carol Gilligan was, you guys remember Carol and she was kind of the, one of the main uh, first ones. Um, for these feminists, human vulnerability is simply reality, okay? And it's a reality most worthy of our attention and deliberate response. Much like Catholics, these feminists see more clearly that vulnerability and dependency are inescapable facts of life. We are all inevitably vulnerable and dependent or are caring for the vulnerable and dependent for much of our lives. No one, not even this phantom autonomous male, right, is autonomous for all that long and certainly not autonomous by his own doing. As eminent philosopher Alastair McIntyre has noted, the responsible adult independence for which human beings properly strive requires the prior care and sacrifice of who? Of others, right? We do not acquire the virtues necessary for independence and flourishing on our own. So autonomy has become the primary goal in, in modernity and, much in mo and also in modern day feminism because of this post-Cartesian conscience, so coming from Kant, situating of human dignity and worth um, in the human capacity to reason and will alone, unencumbered by pre-existing laws or purposes in nature, unencumbered by the constraints or laws of the human body. This forgetfulness of the body in which and through which the intellect reasons, as I mentioned earlier, it's deformed our understanding of the human person, of I think human reasoning too, but also of human dignity. And this is why this philosopher, uh, McIntyre, devoted an entire volume to exploring what it means to be a dependent, rational animal. And this is why uh, your professor, Pat Lee, spends a lot of uh, time on, on this question as well. Human embodiedness, our animal nature, gives way to human vulnerability the characteristic that makes humans dependent upon others for much of our lives. This embodiedness, this dependency is really just as much a part of the human experience as the human ability to reason. Yet dependency has been neglected uh, in much of philosophy, much of ethics, and this, this neglect has been particularly damaging to who? To women. Reason has taken up a lot of time, a lot of space, you know, human ability to reason, um, taken a lot, of, a lot of space and come on in, um, in philosophy. So human dependency is not some exception to be accommodated alongside the normal quest for autonomy and independence. Human dependency is part of the ordinary part and pattern of human life. 
And so human dignity, I would uh, suggest, adheres in the human being, this bodily being, the de this dependent, rational animal. So human beings are different from other mammals in a number of important ways, but among the most important for our purposes today is the extended juvenile period in humans, longer than any other mammal. This long period of maturation in humans allows for the development of these virtues, right, needed for independence and flourishing, but it is costly and time-consuming to those giving care. Human vulnerability and dependency create the need for caregivers. Indeed, in a civilized society, the moral duty that some others give care. But caregiving greatly limits uh, our, uh, the, the caregiver's autonomy. So here is care feminist philosopher Eva Feder Kitte. She's argued for the human dependent to really thrive, to reach a level of independence necessary for his own flourishing, it is morally incumbent upon his caregiver to truly, authentically care for the dependent and his often, de uh, often demanding needs, even if this comes at great sacrifice to the caregiver's own needs. I mean, that's true care, right? Is authentically caring for whatever needs are presented. That's true care. And sometimes it comes at sacrifice to the caregiver. As Kite explains, the caregiver's caregiving status, her nurturing, her duty to love her dependents selflessly, have now made her vulnerable, right? They've made her vulnerable and dependent, not to the full extent of the dependent, of course, but to such an extent that she needs the help of another, another who can provide for her needs while she selflessly cares for her dependents' needs. So according to Kite, the caregiver needs what? A provider. Yes, this old-fashioned term is used explicitly by feminist Kite. So more about providers in a minute. Now, women, of course, throughout all time and in all societies are far more likely to be the primary caregivers of children and other dependents. So why is this? Well, the feminist line, by and large, is that this is due to social construction. This is what the powers that be, the men, have wanted it. And so this is how it's been and continues to be. But social construction doesn't account for the large percentage of highly educated women in today's rather egalitarian society who leave their impressive careers to return home to care for their children entirely or at least part-time. It doesn't account for liberated women, right, who want to endure the sacrifice of giving care. So this theory of social construction ultimately can't make sense of this all because it neglects human embodiment. I mean, this is sort of obvious, right? But the vulnerable human being enters the world, how? Inside his mother's um, body, his body within her body. Indeed, her body naturally provides complete nourishment for his body when he emerges from the womb and for several months, and for some people, well, not complete nourishment for several years, but some nourishment too for several years thereafter, obviously, in, the term, in, term, um, in breast milk. Mothers, by definition, are the custodians of vulnerable human life. Indeed, because the unborn human being is dependent upon its mother in an exclusive way such that only she can meet the unborn child's needs, mothers have a special affirmative duty of care to nurture the unborn child, never to destroy it. But in bearing new life and in sacrificing their autonomy to care for this life, and this is where this feminist Kite's insights become poignant, mothers too become vulnerable. In caring for those who are specially dependent upon them, they too become dependent. And their own dependency makes them vulnerable to exploitation and domination by others, especially upon those who, uh, upon whom they rely for support. 
So most care feminists who have done the thinking about vulnerability and dependency and caregiving acknowledge that women historically have done much of the care and still do to this day. And, they, <clears throat> and, even, um, and even though they may think that these desires may be due to social construction instead of women's nature or something like that, these feminists, these particular feminists, these care feminists, they do um, acknowledge that women, that some women, most women even, enjoy giving care. As a result, this group of feminists, like John Paul the Great in his writings on women, if any of you have read these, they are eager, both groups, right, John Paul II and, and these care feminists, are eager to give care, um, to see caregiving work better valued for the essential contribution it makes to society. They, like John Paul II, want workplaces and the culture at large to better support and value the essential work of caregiving. And finally, like the great saint, these feminists look to urge men to join women in the great and essential work of, of caregiving. And in my experience, Catholic men um, tend to take this care, uh, care work in the family very seriously. So the flourishing of uh, society depends upon those who willingly undertake the care of the next generation. It is incumbent, I think, upon society, and we, we could talk about what that might look like, but it's incumbent upon society to respect, honor, and support caregiving, caregiving work. So though care feminists are cautious of valorizing motherhood the way the church does, right, in the person of Mary, I mean, we very much valorize um, motherhood, and these care feminists are inexplicably in favor of abortion, I mean, this is really the part that I um, find most incredible in light of a lot of their writing. Some have referred to abortion as a responsible parenting decision. Um, and again, we can talk about um, that because I've read a, a lot of that if you're interested. So, but these feminists are eager to shore up motherhood, support for motherhood, in a way that autonomy feminists like, say, Justice Ginsburg are not. And so I'm very thankful for their cutting edge work in this regard. But most care feminists do not see a differentiated role for fathers. Okay, so now we're going to talk a bit about, um, about, uh, about fatherhood. So, sorry, I keep tapping my microphone. So on, on their view, if men are going to be involved, which of course they hope that they will be, then they ought to step into the nurturing role and take over a piece of the caregiving work traditionally performed by women. This frees women up to participate in the workplace and allows men to experience the merits of caregiving for themselves and for their children. In some cases, this care sharing, maybe we could call it, works very well. I, uh, like many of the professional women in this room, I, I presume am grateful for the hands-on role that my husband plays um, in caring and helping to care for our six children, and he and my children are better for it. But the peculiar part of all of this is that Kitte thinks what these men are doing, they're mothering, she says. That is mothering or caregiving, she uses these two terms, um, you know, inter, inter, um, either one is fine, right? Mother or caregiving can be done by women or men. To wit, she says, men can be mothers. It follows from this reasoning that two women or even two men can adequately raise a child just as well as a man or a woman. So long as the caregiver gets the support she needs in her caregiving, the sex, or gender as it's called these days, of the caregiver doesn't really matter. Two parents are better than one in meeting the needs of the children. Two parents have more resources to offer. Um, and indeed, if they are thoughtful about it, they say, these non-gender specific parents can just as well contract out the caregiving role to another altogether. Thus the push for high quality universal daycare among all feminists. And if there's no spouse to support the caregiver, the provider may just as well be a generous welfare state.
And so here's where I disagree with the care feminists, and the disagreement really is as crucial as the agreement. For these feminists, fathers can and should stand in for the mother in this vertical relationship between mother and child, but the father's manness does not make any unique contribution in this view to the healthy upbringing of the child. Indeed, in their view, I think, the father qua father is anathema. His traditional role as sole provider worked only to compound the traditional mother's vulnerability as caregiver because in exclusively providing for her needs, she was put in this far weaker position of relational power. This inequality gave him power to dominate over her. Thus, the women's movement. Thus, the view that traditional marriage is inherently bad for women. Thus, the assumption that women must maintain some work outside the home so she does not become too financially dependent on the one who may dominate or desert her. So inasmuch as I agree that men can and should be nurturing, and then at some may even succeed as, as the primary caregivers of their children. I don't know if Steubenville has any stay-at-home dads. Um, I also think that fathers have a unique and distinctive role. Fathers are not just second-rate mothers, which is often how they're portrayed, right? I actually had someone after the, um, just recently after I wrote, in, in response to the CNN article I wrote, which is along the lines of this, just in a really short uh, version, um, he wrote me, he sent me an article that I just read this morning on the way here um, about maternal chauvinism, okay? And then basically this view that, that, that among feminists and among a lot of people, especially women, look, especially those looking for equal rights in the workplace for women, that women want to hold on to their, um, their ability to sort of answer the baby's cries, they, like to be that primary response to the, to the primary caregiver, basically, you know. So he says, you know, we, we fathers want to be more involved, but you women are keeping us out from being involved, right? Because you just want to elbow us out of housework and out of childcare and all these things. You just want to do that by yourself. Now, I don't, that's on me. So I don't know who she's talking about. <laughs> you want to help? Great. Here's what you got to do. Uh, and in my family, it's not even like that. You don't even ask him. He just does it. I mean, we're just, you know. But anyway, apparently there's this group you know, who she, this writer's accusing of being maternal chauvinist. Anyway, so, so fathers are not just secondary mothers. So I want to return to the body now to sort of understand why this may be the case. So when we start with the body, and so with vulnerability and dependency, we come upon what I think is an interesting sequence. So the quintessential vulnerable person is the child. And the mother stands in immediate vertical relationship as custodian of the vulnerable child in the first place when the child's body is in the mother's own body. Now the father qua father stands not in relation to the child with that sort of maternal immediacy, right? But he does stand in immediate relation, say horizontally with who? With the mother, right? The father is known through the mother because the two have had relations. The father, now just in terms of biology here, stands at some distance from the infant child. This is of course the reproductively, reproductive autonomy I referred to earlier, that which modern day autonomy feminists have sought to imitate, right? They want to be over here, <laughs> you know, detached from the child. But if the manness of man does not matter to the healthy upbringing of the child, there seems to be, if you just look at biology, no unique role for the father. At first glance, the body tells us that man can at, at some level remain autonomous. He can be financial provider or stand in mother should he so choose, or he can donate his sperm and go play video games as far as anyone is concerned. The father qua father, right, is not all that necessary. But that can't be right. Well, why not? 
First, because a large amount of sociological data shows us that the absence of the biological father has a strikingly deleterious impact on his children, on his girls, but now we're seeing new studies are showing more and more on his boys. Secondly, because a woman's happiness in her mothering depends upon the emotional attention both she and the children receive from the father. <clears throat> As a corollary, the father's relationship with his children generally depends on the health of the prior relationship he has with the mother. So his active engagement in the children's lives is unique and necessary to their development, but so is the love he has for their mother. And the latter is often a prerequisite for the former. I'm going to go through this. So third, the third reason, because men need to be fathers, good fathers, attentive fathers for their very own well-being and for that of society at large. So I'm going to go through each of these three points. First, the data. So where do we stand after this large-scale family fragmentation we've seen over the last 40 years? Again, 40% of children are born on, to unwed mothers, upward of 70% in African-American homes. So today we see relatively active mothers and often absent fathers. This in itself, I think, testifies to this stubborn maternal embrace of dependence, even when doing so requires much and comes at great sacrifice for these women. But the absence of fathers has been devastating for the children. Study upon study reveals the following. Children who grow up in a home without their own father are far more likely to end up in poverty, suffer neglect and abuse, use drugs and alcohol, drop out of school. Boys show higher levels of aggressive behavior and are more likely to commit crimes. Girls are more likely to engage in early sexual activity and become pregnant as adolescents. So recently, as I mentioned, researchers have reported that sons raised by single mothers fare even worse than daughters in the same situation. New York Times columnist Ross Duthat has noticed the compounding effect, or you could say the negative feedback loop this problem presents, wherein a boy raised without their fathers are unlikely to ever grow up to be marriageable men themselves, locking in, Duthat says, a world where boys don't have fathers around to model masculinity and a dating scene where women don't have enough plausible um, mates to choose from. There's another um, a woman at the Brookings Institute, which is a, a liberal think tank, Elizabeth Saw Hill, Sawhill, I think is her name. But she also says, well, counter to that, women are also not that marriageable anymore either, especially in poor, poor um, uh, um, areas, disadvantaged areas. Why is that? Because they have children from other men. And most men don't want to marry a woman who has children from one man, two men, you know what I mean? So there's a lot of unmarriageable people around, in a, especially in a, in, a, in a population which really needs marriage, really needs marriage, because marriage is um, an, an income, a wealth producer, an income producer. So while some mourn the loss of the, of the father in the lives of children, others have we seen are anxious to replace the father with a generic provider, even if that be state financial and other assistance to the mother. But welfare assistance and universal daycare, no matter how generous, cannot provide mothers with the emotional supports they need to mother their children and flourish while doing so. So this is point two in my three points. So University of Virginia sociologist Brad Wilcox has shown the most important determinant in the mother's well-being and in that, <clears throat> sorry, the most, determinant, uh, the most important determinant of a mother's happiness is the father's commitment and emotional investment in the mother's well-being and in that of their children. That is, committed, emotionally invested husbands and fathers make for the happiest wives and mothers. Moreover, and this is the key here, the father who is in a good relationship with his mother, with, sorry, the mother, is also far more likely to have children 
who are healthier, both psychologically and emotionally. So Wilcox says, quote, one of the most important influences a father can have on his children is indirect. Fathers influence their children in large part through the quality of the relationship they have with the mother of their children. So knowing all this, let's look again at what we know from the body. So mothers have this immediate relationship with the vulnerable child. Father's relationship with his children begins, as Wilcox says, as an indirect, secondary relationship, we might say, to the primary mating relationship he has with the mother of the children. So for fathers to reach their children, which is necessary for both the mother and the children to thrive, fathers must focus as a matter of priority, we could say, on, endure, on, on ensuring a strong and healthy relationship with the children's mother. So this insight may be what, uh, this insight may be what John Paul II meant when he said fathers learn their fatherhood uh, from the mother of their child. So we, we see this play out in after divorce when the quality of the spousal relationship, right, that broken spousal relationship, actually affects father's investment in the children far more than it affects mother's investment in their children. So this is quoting from some family research, quote, while divorce rarely weakens a mother's affection for her children, it does frequently result in deterioration of the father-child relationship. And here's another study. When men are in an unhappy marital relationship, they tend to withdraw from their children as well as their spouse. Now this is not at all to say that fathers are not as necessary as mothers. And importantly, the father's role with the children is also direct. I'm not saying it's only indirect. Um, and we're going to get to that. But it is to say that the essential role of the father in the lives of the children depends upon a prior commitment of father to mother, or more properly, husband to wife. After all, where, where mothers are attached to children by birth, it is the institution of marriage that is the cultural means of attaching fathers to mothers and to children. Thus, among the most important of the father's unique roles is that he loves and respects his children's mother, and that he demands that the children love and respect her as well. Now again, please don't understand, don't misunderstand. So just as a father can love and nurture his child, but ought not be considered as a second fiddle mother, a father is not only a support for the mother, as though mothers with paternal support were all that a child needed. The father's active presence in the ch to the children themselves is also necessary. So I want to say it's necessary, but just not sufficient. While the data on the consequences of the father's absence is far more abundant than the data showing the precise mechanism by which a father directly contributes to his child's well-being, the, that data is growing. And please, if there's anybody who wants to go into research, it's a really important area of data is that father's particular influence on, their, on the children. Fathers who are attentive and caring presence in their children's lives have much better educational outcomes overall. Attentive fathers seem to be a determining factor in the social and emotional uh, well-being of their children. With these children showing more emotional security, confidence in exploring the world, ability to deal with social stresses, and better social connections among peers. Researchers point to fathers' propensity to engage their infants, and especially their preschoolers, in stimulating rough-and-tumble play as the reason for their, for their children's uh, superior ability to regulate their feelings and behavior. When Pat and I were emailing back and forth, he gave the example of you know, a child being thrown up in the air, well, and then an another parent saying, no, be careful. Now, which, which one is which? I mean, we know which, which parent is which in that, in that situation. Um, 
boys with attentive fathers have better impulse control, studies show us. And fathers more than mothers tend to encourage children to do things for themselves at a young age with an eye toward ensuring their competence and confidence in the world later in life. I mean, our perfect example in my house is the park was half a mile away and, my, and, and the little kids would walk. And I'd say, oh, we got to take the wagon. And he'd say, no, they're walking. No, we got to take the wagon. No, they're walking. Of course, I always won. And he said, and that's greatly to our detriment or their detriment now, right? Um, they should have just walked. <laughs> but this would be, you know, this, this interplay. So if the mother's initial immediacy to the child provides this important custodial care and benefit to the child's emotional and physical needs, I think that the father's relative distance from the infant child itself plays an important role. The father's attention and affection offered to the child, since of course it is his child, gives the child the confidence he needs to what? To separate from the mother's abode and to, te and to push um, to teach the child to push his own limits in that essential human maturation process toward independence. Both custodial care and nudges toward independence are necessary to child's development, right? Both are needed. Now, at some age, depending on the temperament and the social situation outlook of the individual mother and father, maybe, um, and maybe the cultural expectations in which they parent, these highly gendered tendencies may become less explicit as the child um, grows. So, you know, I go out and play soccer with my kids all the time because I'm a soccer player, you know, and my husband cooks with my kids all the time. I mean, the, you know, these gendered things are, but in those infant years, um, in those early years when the child development is so critical, these embodied realities tend to prevail, okay? Um, and again, I, I just think that there should be more research on this paternal role. Now, just as children, need their fathers for their proper maturation. That is, they need the father both to be the, the father's presence and they need their father to love their mother. It is my contention that fathers need, or men need to be fathers for their own flourishing. So this is point three in those three, and this will be my last point. So not necessarily physical fathers, mind you, but spiritual fatherhood is definitely a subject for an entirely different talk. So with George Gilder and others, George Gilder wrote a book called Men and Marriage, which is just a classic that anybody interested in any of this kind of stuff should read. I believe that men need to orient their characteristic aggression and competitiveness, their superior physical strength and intrinsic desire for conquest in service of the vulnerable. When we take the body seriously as we have tried to today, we see the role of the mother as custodian quite readily. The role of the father is harder to discern beyond his biological contribution. He stands in immediate relation to the woman and he can stay or he can go. He can attend to her and their children or he can abandon them and spread his seed elsewhere. Sorry to be crude, but biology ultimately doesn't decide. So it is a child-centered, a woman-centered culture, a chivalrous culture. A culture believes, that believes in the moral duty to care for the vulnerable that demands that the father stay, that the father be a father. This sort of culture requires that man turn his intrinsic desire for conquest, a desire that unmet today gives what way to gangs and gamers inward to conquer himself. His desire to dominate others born of the testosterone driving through his body must become a desire to dominate himself and his passions. His primal need to spread his seed, to, to sire as many offspring as possible, this is from evolutionary biologists, right? They talk about this kind of primal tendency, um, must be turned inward toward bodily mastery of lust. In Asian cultures where men greatly outnumber women, why? Because they aborted all the girls. Not all, but 
um, male aggression threatens to overtake civilized society. On, on the other hand, testosterone levels drop when males become fathers, and they drop even more when men are attentive fathers, the studies show. This self-possession that fatherhood properly requires vitiates against external acts of aggression. So long as the man both recognizes and is supported in his vocation to master himself for the good of his wife and children. So Rousseau, I think, was right that woman has a civilizing effect on man, but it isn't because of uh, a woman's natural virtue. She can be vicious, too. But because of sexual asymmetry, woman's experience in vulnerability and dependency and reproduction and caregiving make her more in tune with the vulnerable and dependent. This is the feminine genius that John Paul II spoke of, that ability to see the dignity and value of each person regardless of his or her utility. Um, I'm seeing that I've gone on far too long. So I just want to um, just say that, you know, when we give pride of place to the vulnerable, as the churches want to do, especially, I think, in the person of Pope Francis these days, the woman is really the place of abode, so to speak, where all the action, the sacred, wondrous, life-giving action is. And man finds a purpose for his body's power and aggression when it is put in service of the vulnerable and those who care for them. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.